in this earth, and that all that we face can be used by you for the sake of the gospel. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> for the last year and a half or so, I've, I've really struggled to read about families with kids with Down syndrome. It's pretty obvious as why that might be, but the other day I stumbled across this nonprofit that sends these little lovely baskets to families that have found out one of their children is going to or was born with Down syndrome. And, and as I was looking through this, I, I read the story of Jack, the, the son, the, the charity's called Jack's Baskets. And as I read it, nothing was similar to the experience of Julie, that Julie and I faced. The family thought that their child would be born healthy and well, and they found out at birth that something wasn't quite right. We found out very, very early that Sam has Down syndrome. The family, the family had a normal birth, and then things went from there. We had lots of fun, interesting things happen with it. But despite the vast difference between what Jack's family and our family faced in this process of learning our child has Down syndrome, I found myself crying, crying worse than Lucy cries sometimes, and just uncontrollable tears. I didn't even understand it. But one of the things I've noticed with families as they record the, how this played out for them is that there's a moment in this, this coming to grips with the diagnosis that every single family that I've read about has been like something along the lines of why or I wish this wasn't so or why is this happening to us? And the reality is, is when we face any sort of hardship or suffering or struggling, the question of why almost always pops up. Why do I hurt so bad? Why am I suffering? Why am I struggling? Why is life like this? And here's the bad news. God rarely gives us a picture of why it happens in the microscopic. Why does my foot hurt or something like that? God will probably never give you that answer that you long for. But he makes clear the big picture reason, reasons why we struggle. And one of them comes out and why we suffer. And one of them comes out in this lesson today. And so I want to, as we work, look through this, we're going we're gonna to answer this big picture question of why we as Christians inevitably face hardships. But first we have to stop and look back. We have to understand the geography of this area, the geography that, that, that's going on here. So the temple sits on this high temple, if, if I was looking, a high mountain, if I was looking north. And, and as you come out of the temple, you go down into this valley and then go up and Mount Olives is over here and looks back down at the temple. And it's, it, it's, it's a really beautiful thing to look at. Obviously, there's not a temple there, but there's still the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock there is there, which is pretty hard to miss. And you can, you can really see all of old Jerusalem as you look back down, over the Mount of, down off of the Mount of Olives. And the descriptions that we have of the temple at this point in time is that it was absolutely amazing and beautiful. 
they think that probably there was a little bit of exaggeration, but supposedly the, the, the base stones were massive, massive stones. And then it was overlaid with, I think, marble, just this fine, fine finishing on the, on the front of, on the, around the whole temple. And a, and a rabbi that would have been contemporary of Jesus wrote that he who has not seen the temple in all its splendor has never seen a beautiful building. So you can grasp how beautiful it would be to be Jesus and his disciples and look back over down the hill onto Jerusalem and the beautiful buildings around the temple and, of course, the temple itself. And this beauty would have been this source of nationalistic pride. Like, right, I imagine a lot of us have gone to D.C. and have seen some of the beautiful monuments and all of that. And, and it's hard not to feel, like, good and patriotic looking at those things. And it would have been the same for, for these disciples as they look back down on this temple. And so when this disciple, whoever it was, we don't know, says to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. We can imagine that feeling of pride bubbling up in him. And then Jesus sort of crushes it. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left. Here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. To say that's a bombshell statement is, a, is an understatement. But all of a sudden, as we kind of imagine what's happening here, as we imagine Jesus and his disciples, we realize Mark is making actually a really kind of subtle argument that isn't, isn't quite as subtle as you might, might think it is. We have to go back to Ezekiel 10 and 11 and we see something really interesting here, and, and people kind of get baffled by the imagery of Ezekiel because it is rather baffling, and, and, and the way Ezekiel writes isn't like anything we really experience in Western writing. But, but in verse 18 of chapter 10, Ezekiel writes this picture. The glory of the Lord went out of the threshold of the house, that is the temple, and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up, the, up from the earth, before my eyes and went out with wheels beside them and they stood at the entrance of the gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And then, and then Ezekiel kind of explains what's happening, how, how this judgment is going to come and he continues, the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them and the glory of the Lord of the God of Israel was over them and that glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that was on the east side of the city. What happens here is the presence of God leaves the temple in Ezekiel, crosses out the east gate, which was most likely the gate that Jesus left the temple just, the, just last week we read about, but the same day, and, and goes down and then up to the Mount of Olives. And the glory of the Lord essentially takes the same path that Jesus took leaving the temple. And now Jesus stands opposite the temple and is looking at it with his disciples and is about to teach. <clears throat> and then one more fascinating detail is in Mark's gospel, Jesus will not return to the temple again. Now Mark's statement is subtle, but what Mark is trying to paint the picture of is that in Jesus' departure of the temple, like the presence of God departed from the pre-Ezekiel temple, so God has now departed from this old way. 
And as they sit there, the disciples, of course, miss the message, as we are so prone to do, and, and we do this day and age as well. And, and they, and they want to know, well, okay, Jesus, so if this is going to happen, when is this going to happen? Tell us all about it. You see, almost every generation has gotten lost in the question of when Jesus will return. But the reality is, is if we carefully read this section and the parallel section in Matthew and the revelation to St. John, the question of when this is going to happen is never a concern. But rather the concern is what our life should be while we wait. So Jesus gives them warnings. Jesus warns them that some will come to try and deceive them. This deception is most likely that they will claim either that he is that they are the Christ returned or even simply that they are God. They use that same phrase, the I am here, and try to amass for themselves a following, try to draw away from Jesus followers for their own. And so, as he warns the disciples, so must we be wary of those who might try and draw us away from Christ. My undergrad professor once read to us the Matthew parallel of verses 7 and 8, and he called it the most, which, is, which happens here is, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. And this undergrad professor of mine called this the most sarcastic part of the Bible. I think this is a little bit of an overstatement. However, Jesus is being intentionally vague here. Because the point isn't, isn't to give these little guideposts of when, when these things will come to be. The point is, is, is what he's about to make. But, but again, much like, much like our, our desire to kind of know mass details, there are people who, who will use this and try and sort of pigeonhole different events into this and say, oh, this must mean that Jesus is coming back soon. And of course he's coming back soon, at least sooner than he was then. But we still don't know what soon is. Simply soon, yes. But a more important part here specifically is he's not referring to his return. He's referring to the fall of the temple. This, this part of, the, of scripture has specifically to do with the fall of the temple, which already happened in 70 AD. So they've already come to pass. And then Jesus calls all of these things that you're going to see birth pains. And this imagery is, is really clear. What will come to pass will be costly. It will be hard. It will be painful to be a part of. It will cost the downfall of the old ways. It will cost the disciples everything. But then Jesus makes a promise and clarifies why this must happen. Jesus says the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
Or to put it another way, it is necessary to proclaim the gospel to all nations. What is supplied here is more than simply a what will happen for the sake of knowing what will happen. It is the reason that the temple must fall because the old way must be replaced with the new covenant. It is more than simply a what will happen. It is a reason for hope amidst suffering. Even if you're not a woman, even if you're not somebody who had children, Chances are each and every one of you knows at least one person who has had a child and knows how painful childbirth was, knows how painful labor was. But if you know somebody that closely, you've also seen her joy and her glow when she holds a newborn, her newborn baby. The reason that Jesus uses this very, this very strong analogy is because it's a common human experience. We've all seen or known somebody or, or in fact have had a child ourselves. So that even a celibate itinerary preacher, whom we know as Jesus, knew the joy and the hardship of childbirth. But like birth, seeing that child for the first time helps make that suffering bearable. The joy of the gospel is what makes this suffering that Jesus describes bearable. St. Paul cracks, or, or, or picks this up in, in his epistle to the Philippians. In chapter 3, he writes to the Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. St. Paul, if you don't remember his story, was this highly educated and very well-respected Pharisee of his time. And then as he's walking along, he meets Jesus and he leaves all of that behind to be a servant and slave to Jesus. And as he reflects on this and writes back to the, to, the, to the Philippians or writes to the Philippians, he tells them all of these qualifications that he's had and he lost because he came to know Jesus. And to the eyes of the world, this is foolishness. Imagine somebody who spent years getting a PhD or a medical degree or something else and then just leaving it behind for something else. We'd wonder, what is wrong with you? And that's what Paul has done. But he goes further and he says, all of these things that I have gathered and I left behind for the sake of Christ aren't just things I left behind. They're rubbish. They're rubbish. This is the joy of the gospel for us. This is the joy of the gospel for you. That when we face hardship, we remember God can use this for the sake of his gospel so that others might know his goodness and also that even the suffering that we fail pales in comparison to what we will have in eternity. But what if in this I falter? But what if I'm asked the question I don't know the answer to? 
What if I fail to represent Christ well? You will. You will falter. You won't know all the answers. You will not represent Christ perfectly. But you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will be given strength to persevere. You will be given the words to speak well and the grace to repent. The Holy Spirit is the gift for these seasons. And so the call becomes clear. Persevere. Persevere for the sake of the gospel. Jesus continues with this exhortation and warnings that aren't meant to be these guideposts, but they're meant to encourage people through the hardships that they will face. A part of the reason why this passage has caused so much confusion is because it can seem like a guide. These things will happen, Jesus says. And it does warn of some things happen. Some of them are very general and some of them are very specific. One of the universal warnings that we face, of course, is that people will hate you. They will hate you. They will hate you because you are a Christian. And the call stands the same. It isn't, well, well, bend to their will. It doesn't change what you believe. It is persevere. Do not give up on Christ when people hate you. Their hatred for you is for the sake of the gospel. Now, a very important side note here. If you're a total jerk to your neighbor and they hate you, it's not because you're a Christian, it's because you're a jerk. Or at least being a jerk. Repent. But if they hate you because, despite the fact that you love them well, if you suffer despite living in Christ's righteousness day in and day out, a part of the reason is for the sake of the gospel. And you are called in that to persevere and to continue to love them well. A specific warning comes, though, in verse 14, where he describes this thing happening. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There are in, in history before the fall of the temple two or three events that this could be referring to, and it could simply refer to when the Roman soldiers get to the temple and are, are about to just completely decimate it, more than literally decimate it. They, they, they describe the burning down of the temple as they, they lit it on fire and the water in the stones was exploding. <clears throat> so they annihilate the temple. So it could simply just refer to the events right before that. But the phrase is borrowed from Daniel 12. At the end, it's the very end of Daniel. And Daniel writes, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes, the des makes desolate is set up. And, and this is what Jesus draws from. What Jesus and Daniel make clear is that someone will make a mockery of the temple, will make a mockery of God, and will make a mockery of right and good worship. But your call remains the same. 
persevere. Persevere. And Daniel likewise gets to this in the very last sentences of his book. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Persevere. Persevere to the end, whatever you face. You will see horrible things happen. You will experience heartache and hardship. They saw something horrible that they never thought was possible. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah warns them that that first temple would fall. And they would say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Which meant, no, there's no possible way that this could fall. The Lord wouldn't do that to his own temple. If you haven't read the book of of Jeremiah, the spoiler is that temple fell. Sometimes these impossible things happen. But the call is the same. Persevere. For the disciples who remained in Jerusalem, it was flee from your home. Don't look back. Go. But don't abandon Christ. There will be times of severe severity. There will be times of hardship. But because of the elect, those, th- those who are in Christ... It will not go on forever. The warning of the coming coming tribulation does not promise that we will avoid hardship, even dreadful hardship, but the call remains the same. You probably know what I'm going to say now. Persevere for the sake of the gospel. And our passage ends with a warning this morning. Be on guard. Be on guard not to be misled by those false Christs and false teachers, those who would lead you away from Christ. They have existed for every age. Some might tell you that if your faith is right, if your faith is good and strong enough, you can have your best life now. We've seen now that that is not the case. Some want you to believe that Christ would condone your sin, the one that you don't want to let go of. This is not the case. Some would want you to believe that you should trust in the things of the world, that you vote for the right person or amass enough stuff or enough money, then you have no worries in this world or the next. And we desperately want to believe one of these things or multiple of these things because they are easy to believe. But Christ warns us, do not be misled Persevere for the sake of the gospel. We are often like the disciples and we want to know these these answers of, well, how will these things take place or when will they be? We want to know like on our calendar and, and scribble in, Jesus is coming back on this date. I'll be ready. But these questions don't concern Jesus. And rather he makes clear, the temple must fall to show God's power, and to usher out the old and inaugurate the new. The disciples and God's people will suffer. Their suffering is not random, but it is in order that the gospel may go to the ends of the world, in order that all might hear what what the book of Mark starts with. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God 
is at hand. Repent from your sins. Turn towards a better kingdom. Turn towards the kingdom of God. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom that is now here. Well, struggles and suffering will come for any number of reasons. God has the power and the grace to use your struggling for the sake of the gospel. God will use your suffering and hardship in order that the world might have an opportunity to know the gospel of Christ. In order to know the surpassing worth of Christ that is worth more than everything you have in this life. So dear friends, persevere. Persevere for the sake of the gospel. Persevere because Christ has made you his. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.